Hey, before we get started, just a little shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. Now, I love me some alcoholic beer, but my goodness, when I need a non-alcoholic one, it's Athletic Brewing, not a paid plug. I'm a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product, especially Free Wave. Oh, hazy IPA, it's so good. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. Again, I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points for swag and beer. You know, give it a shot. I just pay for shipping. Uh, once I've earned enough points, it's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, Athletic Light, that's another great one. And like I said, the free wave. Go check it out. All right? Good. The best way that it happens to like get your style as an artist is when you have a deadline that's like very short and you don't have time to like overthink it and like get all of your influence in it. I feel like once the deadline is really short and you have to do it really quickly, like you just like fully present yourself. ACNF, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Wow. Some of you know that I won the New Yorker caption contest a few weeks ago. No bigs. And since I deeply envy illustrators and cartoonists and wish that I was doing that instead of whatever it is I do, I reached out to the cartoonist himself, Akeem S. Roberts the brilliant cartoonist who set the table for my winning caption. A little about Akeem. He's an illustrator, animator, and cartoonist based in Brooklyn, New York. He is passionate about breathing life into stories through art. He broke through in The New Yorker in 2019, and in 2021, he participated in Cartooning While Black, a Chelsea Art Gallery show that discussed race relations in a playful and charming way. He draws a weekly comic series about his life with his wife and two cats on Instagram. He's at Akeem Team. So A-K-E-E-M-T-E-A-M. This is a fun chat about creativity, developing ideas, working through the grind, dealing with self-doubt. Some great stuff here. I think you're going to really like it. I love talking to cartoonists. with Jesse Springer, Emily Poole, Michi Ng. Uh, Kristen Ratke. It's really cool. I love the medium, and it's great to pick their brains and how they go about storytelling with that visual element, too. And the writing just has to be so tight. So tight. Make sure you're headed over to brendanomero.com hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's now on Substack. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Still first of the month. No spam. Can't beat it. This is how we rage. If you dig the show, consider sharing it with your network so we can grow the pie and get the CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. And don't we all need the juice? You can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a kind review for the wayward CNFer. You know, the, those things matter. And for a show like ours, it's a little podcast that could when we see all those reviews and ratings. And there are a lot of written reviews. It's amazing. Someone might be more inclined to be like, holy crap, I'm going to... Check that out. I don't know who Brendan is, but let's give that a shot. Also, there's patreon.com slash cnfpod. Uh, if you drop a few bucks in there, uh, if you glean some value from what we churn and burn here at a CNF Pod HQ, be greatly appreciated. I'm trying to find some creative ways to um, sweeten the pot for people over there. I might be kicking the CNF and happy hour over to the Patreon crew. 
most of the people who show up to the CNF and Happy Hour happen to be patrons anyway. Uh, so I figure maybe I'll just open the door to that side of the crew. I usually did the CNF and Happy Hour to uh, newsletter subscribers, um, but I'm thinking that I might might go over to Patreon. Who knows? Anyway, enough about enough of that housekeeping crap. All right, you're not here for housekeeping. You're here for Akeem S. Roberts. It's time, CNFers. Riff. With New Yorker cartoons, what's the the process by which you go about dra- drawing those and getting your ideas uh, for those? Uh, so usually, like my main thing is that I'm mostly on the phone. So like my iPhone notes app, like there's just like a little note that I have pinned to the top that's like New Yorker ideas. And basically I'll just like jot down a concept and then like uh, add a little what I think the caption would be. And then from there I'll like sketch it and then I'll normally read my joke and then decide that it's not good enough and then rewrite it again. <laughs> yeah. But uh, sometimes I do just like commit to the bit and I'm like, all right, this joke is really good. And I just like do that one. <laughs> oh, that's great. And uh, so like when you were, I don't know, when you were like, uh, you know, coming up as a, as, as an artist and, you know, figuring out what kind of, you know, things you were drawn to, be it, uh, you know, some people are, are more drawn to writing or to film. And clearly, you know, you're a, a wonderful illustrator and cartoonist. So uh, where did you get the, the bug for that? Uh, I feel like my bug came from just like animation. Like I would like draw a lot as a kid and I would like be drawing uh, Nickelodeon characters as they were on my screen, like Chucky. I would like try to draw it, but I wasn't the kid that would pause it. So it like really made me like now that I think about it, think about the character as like more of a three-dimensional form versus mm. just like very flat. Cause I never paused. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to try and get it. And maybe that's just cause like my brain, like couldn't stay focused. If it was paused, I just wanted it to move, but that's how I started. And then I really wanted to get into animation, but then, you know, things happened and I realized that like writing was like better for me in the long term, especially with like my art and my voice. You know, when I've spoken to cartoonists in the past, so oftentimes the predominant feeling is like it's about the writing first, be it the caption, the the joke, and then the the art kind of supports it. So, uh, is that what you found too? That it's it kind of stems from the joke, and then you create your art to support it, the drawing to support it. Yeah, so I feel like it is like really about the joke first, and then the art, but then. The, like, but like my process is very like ebbs and flows. Like sometimes I'll like draw something and then like think of a caption later or like just go, like I said, with originally with the joke, I think. But most of the ones that I've like gotten through are like jokes that I just like wrote down, thought of, and then like drew it out. And that's mainly when I'm like on an airplane, like usually when I'm like in flight for some reason at an airport, like that's when my juices are really flowing. And I don't know if that's just cause like I'm locked in a room basically. And like all I have to do is work, but <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Cause essentially a lot of decisions are made for you. Like you're, there aren't any very, there aren't a ton of distractions around and, you know, be it doing dishes or uh, these other rabbit holes that you can go into in your apartment or your house. 
And so if yeah. you're there traveling, be it a train or a plane, it's like, well, this is this is kind of the only thing I can focus on. I, I can really see that. So, that, yeah, that's where I usually get my, like, big juices going. And then besides that, it's, like, commuting on the train. But, like, I don't really, like, draw out my ideas when I'm on the train. And when I'm on the train, I'm just that, like, weirdo that's, like, typing in his notes app. And I'm sure someone's looked over my shoulder and is like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> he is just adamantly typing in his notes app. Like, who does that? <laughs> it, it, do you do you get like uh, tend to or do you tend to have kind of like a flood of ideas? You just have things and you're just typing furiously like, oh, this is something. This could be something. This is really good. What gets it started is usually just like in a control setting where like I'm like having the set or like having like nothing else to do but just like be present in the moment. And then I'll see something funny. Like I'll see a guy get on the train and like do something ridiculous. Like one time me and my wife were on the train and there was this guy who got who gets on and he's like listening to music like loud. Which like, you know, that can be annoying. But, like, it's fine if it's, like, different songs or, like, you know, a full song. But it wasn't, like, a real song at all. It was kind of, like, just a ringtone, like a 30-second <laughs> ringtone. And, like, he listened to this ringtone on blast for the whole ride from when we were, like, I think we were up at, like, Union Square on the queue. So, like, from the queue in Union Square all the way down to Brooklyn – this guy was just like listening to this 30 second song on repeat. And obviously I was just flooded with ideas. I haven't figured out how to quite sell that joke to the New Yorker yet, but like I want to so bad. <laughs> <laughs> what is that dialogue like when you're talking with uh, a, a, the cartoon editor of the New Yorker when they're like, okay, yeah, that sounds pretty funny. Go, go pursue that. I guess when you're like in the office, you get more of a dialogue. Like when we used to go in, it used to be like I could like sit with uh, Emma and like she would like look through it with me and like be like, okay, this is close. This is like very far off. This is like, oh, maybe you need to tweak the like caption for this. And I feel like that was like better. But now I've been doing it just like slowly on only online. So for that, it's really just like you send in jokes you get literally no word unless you get like an okay email that like it got accepted. And then every once in a while, I feel like Emma does this. So like the cartoonists don't lose hope is that she'll send something that's like this cartoon came pretty close, but it didn't quite make it. And then I'll like resubmit that cartoon for maybe too many times. And then I'll keep like coming up with more ideas that are like in that vein I feel like my process is just like if I start writing one joke, then I'll definitely think of another one after. But it like takes me a while to get started. Yeah, to the point of not losing hope, I think that that speaks to so many you know creative people and how they you know deal with rejection and and, and sending sending things off to editors and then like not hearing anything. You're like, well, is this bad? Or are they just busy? Or they're just like, oh, you know, it's fine, but we don't, it's just not a good fit right now. And then she does yeah. give you a little bit of juice, be like, okay, you know, like you're, you're close, but it's didn't, didn't quite hit the mark. So how, yeah. how do you, you know, process that and, and keep going in the face of that, uh, the ongoing rejection that everybody deals with? I think you just like have to find an outlook. There was one time that I submitted a batch 
that was just basically a bunch of cartoons being like how I can't sell a joke. And <laughs> Emma like responded and she was like, are you okay? Like, how's, how's life? And I had to be like, yeah, I'm fine. It's just like, <laughs> sometimes like, I'm just like writing from my experience and like, that was the experience I was going through that week where I was like, man, I really cannot get a joke to go. <laughs> like I had a cartoon basically where it was like me, like sitting in like a art museum basically. And I was like an exhibit and I was like sitting in the corner with like a dunce cap on. And the <laughs> joke was like the tour guide showing a bunch of people, me and being like, Oh, here is a New Yorker cartoonist who hasn't thought of a funny thing in like five months. And like, she was very worried <laughs> and I was like, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm just, you got to get those like bad jokes out of the way. Like those are bad drawings that you got to do. You just got to like get everything out, just send it. And then like, you'll be like, all right, let me reset and like get it together. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good point about you know, working through quote unquote bad drawings or bad jokes. Cause eventually you, if you have the endurance to stick stick through that and stick through that the the or fight against or push back against perfectionism you you get through if you do enough bad stuff good stuff almost has no choice but to show up and has that kind of been yeah. your experience as you kind of work through you know mediocre things that aren't up to your taste and standard but like it's the bad stuff that eventually leads to good really good stuff yeah, I feel like it's that if I, if I have like a like, for instance, that joke for me, I thought was hilarious. Like I just I knew the New Yorker like wouldn't buy it. But for me, it was funny. And like every once in a while, I like to put in jokes that I know probably won't make it. But it's just for me to be like, I thought this was funny. And on the off chance that you find it funny, too, here it is. Otherwise, it's just a laugh for us. You know, and then any, you know, issue, like, I don't know how many run typically, let's just round number of like 15 cartoons in the issue. It might be less, it might be more. Um, do you know on a given week, like how many cartoonists are competing for those finite spots in the magazine? I absolutely have no idea. I feel like you just know it's a big number. And I feel like what really struck me how big it was, was when, I went to the 98th anniversary party earlier this year and I was like meeting a bunch of cartoonists not even all of the cartoonists could come, but like the ones that were in New York and like some flew and like, I was like just meeting onslaught of people also like the greats and stuff like that. And it was just like, all right, like when I'm getting rejected, like there's like thousands of people or like, more like sending jokes in that they're going through like even the like getting close it's like pretty good like because of just like how vast the number is of cartoonists and i feel like that also helped me like keep it in sight of just being like you know remember that it's not just like you and like five other people it's not as personal it's like they gotta like let everybody get a shot to get in the magazine and like it just wasn't funny enough or like it just isn't your time when a bunch of cartoonists congregate like that, yeah, what do you guys typically talk about? Uh, we definitely talk about cartoons for one, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we just t we like talk shop. We like be like, "Oh, what was your first cartoon?" Like show show each other our work, um, follow each other on Instagram, and then we just like get drunk and like start telling each other stories, up 
date each other on each other's lives, talk about TV. Like I recently went to like an art uh, opening and after that we went to like shoot pool and do karaoke, which I sadly did not make it to karaoke, but I was very jealous. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, that's great. And I, I understand your first New Yorker cartoon was published in 2019. What was, well, for one, what was the cartoon and like, what was that like for you just to, to, to break through in that way? Okay. Yeah. So when I first started, basically like my introduction to New Yorker was like very different. I didn't even have it on my like thought process or like even wanting to pursue being a New Yorker cartoonist. I just like thought it was just like outside of my realm and I was like tabling at this convention in New York called uh, Mocha Fest in 2019. And that weekend after I like got a message from Emma that was like, oh, I like your work. Do you want to do like a daily shout or you can like submit some like one-off cartoons? So I was like, oh, that's cool. And I like looked at it and then I had a trip. I think I like went to a wedding in like South Carolina. So like I was on a flight, had nothing but time. (laughs) and I was like writing as many jokes as I could. And when I submitted it to her, I was like, all right, this is my first time doing it. You know, let's see how it goes. And I got an okay the very first time I submitted, which the joke was basically this cat looking at a mouse. And this mouse has like a newspaper with glasses with his hands out, like giving like a handshake to the cat. And he's (laughs) like, you must be the super. It's like the joke, just like the cat's the super for the mouse. And they really loved it. And I also had another one that was like just as bad, but it was like darker. It was just like the mouse had more of a family in the background. And it was like, we'll have Ren on the first, I promise. And it was more just like a shakedown, but like that was too dark for the New Yorkers. So they went with like the lighter version. And, um, you know, you said uh, earlier about how you would, you would, you would see, uh, you know, cartoons of Chucky. And I, I met, was that, would that have been like Rugrats? Yeah. 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 yeah Rugrats. Yeah. So you're drawing those like, um, so over the, so you're, you're drawing those, you know, what, what are some other, you know, cartoons growing up, uh, that helped inform, uh, the style that you would eventually, you know, sort of adopt as your own? Uh, I feel like I'm like grabbing from a bunch of places. I feel like definitely there's like an anime influence from like Dragon Ball Z, a little bit of Rugrats, and then I would say cat dog. I feel like that's closer to like what my eyes that I do for the New Yorker are like. Those I feel like are closest to like what I would say my inspiration is for like what my art style like looks like. Yeah, the style and voice is such um, an elusive thing. Whatever artistic medium it is, you know, be it writing or illustrating, even film. You know, how did you work through your your influences and like throw them into the blender and, you know, and then when you pour it out, it's like something that's uniquely Akeem. Like, you know, how did what was that sort of journey like for you? I feel like I'm still on that journey, but I also yeah. feel like the best way that it happens to like get your style as an artist is when you have a deadline that's like very short and you don't have time to like overthink it and like get all of your influence in it. I feel like once the deadline is really short and you have to do it really quickly, like you just like fully present yourself because like that's who you have to fall back on is like, what's your shorthand? 
how do you, how do you draw a hand or like anything just like quickly off your imagination? Yeah. And at what point did you know you had a, a knack for it growing up where you're like, this is something that you could pursue and you're like, Oh yeah, I, I do have like that kernel of talent that I can really lean into and really start to master. Uh, I feel like that didn't even happen until like after college. I feel like mm -hmm. <laughs> I, uh, went to USC, uh, the university of South Carolina for media arts. So basically I learned like film, uh, like script writing, Photoshop and all of the Adobe suite, but it was mostly focused on like film and photography. So I feel like I had always drawn, but I had always known that there was like people better than me in my circle. And I feel like you can either like get hit down by that and like not pursue art or just like know that like you'll never be the best. And it's like constantly, you just like have to work on it. And I almost got hit down, but I decided to keep going. <laughs> mm. At that at that moment, a lot of a lot of people like my stock and trade just being you know normal nonfiction writing. Um, some people they hit that fork in the road. They're like, well, I can either keep pursuing say long form narrative journalism or go to law school or something like that. That fork in the road where it's just you kind of you kind of give up on the thing to go to something more stable. Um, yeah. It looks like you had a fork in the road there, but you continue you doubled down on on your abilities and kept going. So what was that inflection point like for you and when you decided to keep going? Uh, so one of my friends like moved to New York uh, after I did in the summer. And that was when I was just like working at Starbucks. I was still doing like my comics that I do on Instagram, just like weekly, but like every so often I wasn't like really committed to it. And then he was like, Oh, there's this like animation studio that like is in the same building that he got a job at. So I like reached out to them and they like hired me. And then from there I started doing like whiteboard animations, like motion graphic type explainer videos, which like, was fine, but I like really wanted to do something more. So I like constantly just like used my webcomic to like push myself to get better at art while I was like still doing my day job of like creating uh, whiteboard videos. But even also at that time, I was still working at Starbucks. So I was like animating and then going to Starbucks at night and then like doing that cycle all over again. It was very long days of just like trying to get my voice out there and trying to figure out who I am. And I feel like I didn't feel sad whenever I was drawing. So I guess that was like the motivation to keep me going was that like, no matter what it like uplift my spirits. So I felt like it was definitely something I just had to commit to and just like keep doing. What were those yeah. moments like at, uh, you know, at, at Starbucks when you're, you know, you're, you're there, there's this thing that's helping to pay the rent, but it's also not the thing you ultimately want to do. It was weird. Cause like near the end of it, I was just like working at Starbucks just like one day a week, but I was like a ship supervisor. So I was like working one day a week, but also in charge. It was a very weird dynamic <laughs> to like <laughs> have to come down and open the store and be like, what's going on? But at the same time, everyone's looking at you to know what's going on. And I'm like, all right, yeah, I guess uh, I'll figure it out today and then I'll forget everything and try to remember next week. <laughs> but it was like a weird juggling. Like, I guess like people like saw me working on art and they were like, you know, 
maybe he'll do it, <laughs> but they weren't like quite sure. I know like back when I first moved here, I was like living in the Bronx. And one of the things that like used to like give me the spirit was that like there was always when I was like sketching on the commute on the like one train or the two train, there would be old ladies that would always just like say, never give up as I'm like drawing. <laughs> and I was like, oh. all right, <laughs> they see something. So even if that day I didn't see anything in it, like they at least saw something and they were like, keep going. I don't know. That like helped me a little bit as well as like having that like community push me even without really knowing me, just like seeing me on the train and people being like, I can see it. It's not quite there, but I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have like a, like a, a Starbucks level PTSD? Like if people order like the same thing or you hear an espresso machine sort of steam off, does it like give you the shutters? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like the only thing that really like got under my skin when it was like Starbucks related was like, oh, Frappuccinos, like Frappuccino happy hour. Oh, I hated it so much, but not not because of the drinks. Like, yeah, it was the drinks were crazy. But I think the thing that like really got under my skin as like a barista was like the secret menu where people would just like order things from it. And I don't think it's the fault of the secret menu i think the fault is just that like they would say the name of something on the secret menu without telling me what's in it so it's like give me the captain crunch and i'm like what's what's in that that's not a thing like just can you tell me like what the order is and they'll be like no i don't know it <laughs> captain crunch give it to me <laughs> and i'm like oh, what <laughs> and i feel like that that is the most that like things got under my skin was when it became like so much secret menu stuff, especially for frappuccinos where you're like adding crazy ingredients that did not go together to make like crazy flavors. And it was just like, I had to like be, you're not allowed to be on your phone, but I had to pull out my phone to look up the ingredients and then like <laughs> try yeah. to make that drink. It was uh, flashbacks. <laughs> Oh man, how like if you had to put a number on it, how many off menu secret recipes are there? If I had to put a number on it, when I was like at Starbucks, which has been a while now, I would say there was at least like 200. It's just like some people would get a custom drink that they would get all the time and then it would be like, "You know what? Here's the name for it." And it's one for sure was definitely like Captain Crunch, there was like s'mores. Uh, there was like crazy other ones and I was just like, I hate all of these. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done a cartoon about that yet? Cause that seems like a pretty, pretty ripe one. I haven't yet. I feel like I, I forgot that I can go back into my <laughs> Starbucks lore and uh, <laughs> bring out some stuff. You know, any, any writer or creative person, uh, you know, needs some degree of, uh, like a, of a practice, kind of a, a routine by which you can really kind of hang your hat on. Uh, get work done, work through the bad stuff as we were talking about earlier. Uh, so for you, like when you're setting out, say at the beginning of the week or whatever day it might be, like what is the practice by which you sort of organize your, um, you know, your work? Uh, so I like to start my day by like getting a coffee and some kind of snack. And then I like come back home and while I'm eating, I try to like watch, watch a show Usually I'll pick something that's like very like Saturday morning cartoon vibe to just like get the juices flowing and like uh, get into that mindset. 
So I like watch something like that. And then I'll like sit at my desk and I'm sure I'll like procrastinate and pull up a bunch of YouTube links. And then like <laughs> I'll just like open up a thousand tabs and be like, this is the YouTube video I'm going to watch after that one. This is the one I'm going to watch after that one. And then like, I'll like start playing them and just like start sketching and then hope for something magical to happen. <laughs> it's fun. Like with other artistic media, you know, I, like I said, like I'm primarily a writer and I'm sort of, I'm often inspired by like, what, what, for instance, uh, I'm working on this biography right now, but I'm kind of inspired structurally by the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary for the 98 bulls. Yeah. And, and just the way the, that is set up with ancillary characters that are, you know, big in Michael's orbit, but also just how it seesaws back and forth structurally in time. Um, I don't know if I'll go quite to that extreme, but that to me is like, oh, that's a good model. Um, so f- for you with your, w- with your work, w- what other, you know, areas of artistic media do you watch? Are you like, oh, that's something that might not be my stock and trade, but it's definitely something I can model my work on. Uh, I feel like I read a bunch of like anime or like watch a bunch of animes and read a bunch of mangas. That's definitely something that like, it's like part of my influence and like that I like, but I haven't quite been able to like do that with my own work. But yeah, I'm trying to like pitch some like middle grade children book stories. Cause like I worked on a chapter book series in like 2020 um, with like Coquila and like, that was really fun. So I'm like thinking like, maybe I want to do like a graphic novel, something like that to like share some more stories of mine. Yeah. In terms of a, a graphic novel, do you think, do you think you, I, I'm a real big fan of like graphic memoirs and stuff that just, you know, really is just, you know, a non nonfiction account of someone's life, just, you know, beautifully drawn and, you know, uh, whimsically written. Uh, is that something that you want to, you know, flirt with thing, you know, and start, you know, bringing up stories of your childhood and right into young adulthood? Yeah, I feel like I want to stay quite in like the middle uh it's called middle grade which i guess is like early or like late elementary school i feel like that's a good ground for me of like things that i like to write about and like i never i always think about it in like fiction like i'll do a fictional character but like they'll be heavily based on my own life and i'll just like mix some things up it's just basically like um, choose your own adventure, but with my own life, I'm like, what if (laughs) there was a ghost, (laughs) you know, I just like go down that rabbit hole. The, the middle grade genre is really, it's such a, an important time. I think a lot of people lose the, the desire to read and it'd be kind of might become uncool at that time. And you just, a lot of kids fall off. So is, is that something that, you know, you're hoping that if you kind of go into that, you know, that headspace and create from that platform that you might be able to keep inspiring people to maybe draw or certainly keep reading? Yeah, I think when it comes to like heavy influences, I I know that like as adults, we always give it up to like our high school years. But when I think about it, I'm like, man, maybe middle grade, like late elementary was very highly influential to me. I still love all the shows that I watched back then, like SpongeBob, Hey Arnold, like Rugrats. Like I feel like 
those are like so ingrained in the culture even today and that's like very middle grade i feel like we don't talk about it enough how like huge of an influence middle grade is right yeah and you know what was it about you know that time in your life too where you know maybe those you know those cartoons like uh especially like meant a lot you know what was you know that your headspace at that time where you're kind of really glommed onto those? Uh, I would say like the like Captain Underpants books. I feel like those were like the first type of media that presented that like, Hey, you can do this too, basically. Mm-hmm. Cause like they would have those little comics in the book that they just like made for fun in their treehouse, And it was like kind of the first time where I like realized that like, yeah, if you want to, like, do art, you can just, like, make your own stories. And, like, you can tell your own tales based upon the people around you. And, like, maybe the other kids would like it. Yeah, that's what I really love about your Instagram, too, which is, you know, it's it's just a lot of your domestic life with your wife and your cats. And it's, like, really just whimsical and funny. And and I, I think it's just really relatable with these just the little snippets of stories you share. So, like... How how would you uh, like? How important is, uh, is is Instagram to your to your trade? I feel like it's very important. At least right now, like for me and like how I got my start, it's like very important. Like I don't know if like Emma would have seen my work if I didn't have an Instagram. I feel like that's what she saw was like my Instagram, and she like loved the the comedy and the storytelling that I had there. So I feel like that was really important because like especially when it comes to things that are visual i feel like a lot of companies and a lot of people want to see you do it first in order to like feel that they can trust you to like uh make a book or like pitch ideas or anything like that like they want to see like something that you've done first which is why i think like the instagram was like big for me in that sense of like showing my artwork but also in the sense of showing like my voice and my like writing yeah that's really important to underscore i think a a lot of people might wonder like oh how do i how do i get a start how do i break through or get noticed as a as a cartoonist if we're just good to use your primary your primary trade and it's like to your point it's just they want to see you do it first so you just have to have the agency to start making a body of work just giving yourself permission to put it out there and then I don't know how you get noticed from there. And you, know, you can't just always hashtag your way to get in front of the right people, but I'm sure it doesn't ha- doesn't hurt. So it's um it's just like you said, you gotta just have a body of work and put it out there. My Instagram didn't like start getting people to notice it until like 2019, but I was like doing comics every week from like 2016, and like. I felt like Instagram, You, I used that to, like, figure out what was my niche and, like, what worked for me. So, like, at first I was doing, like, slice of life comics, but I was, like, trying to keep them less slice of life and more of, like, a comic strippy vibe. So I was, like, really inspired by, like, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. So I was, like, all right, let me, like, have a character that's, like, with me that I can, like talk political stuff about with and like even just like shoot the anything just like hang out with so I was like thinking of a character that's like important to artists which was like art block 
So like in my first couple of comics, I had a character that was art block. And like the main joke was like, this character was like stealing jokes from me. And like, I couldn't <laughs> think of like what to write because of that character. And then as I kept writing, I started to like give that character more of a backstory. So I was like, oh, this character like just wants a friend at first. And that's why he steals ideas because like he just wants to like hang out with my Akeem character. And then after a while, I felt like I was like using that art block as a crutch too much to like not really progress or like not even write a comic because I could always be like, ah, art block did it again. You know what I mean? <laughs> so then I like one of like Inktober's, which was like where you like draw an ink drawing like every day in like October, I was like following the prompts and I decided to use that as like a big send off to art block and basically it starts off with like me like not having an idea and then he's like oh i'll give you ideas and then i like jump in art block's mind or whatever and like i'm like going through the days but also like using those prompts to like continue the story along and then near the end i thought of like a tragic story for art block which is just like art block was my imaginary friend that like when you grow up you forget about them and so, like, as an artist, you forget your imaginary friend. And Art Block is, like, basically your imaginary friend, like, trying to stay alive in your memory and, like, not get replaced by new ideas, which is why they stop them from coming. And then at the mm. end of it, I, like, had that character be, like, it's okay to forget me, basically. And, like, you can, like, start having other ideas. And, like, that's how I killed off Art Block in the web series. <laughs> Oh man, that's so like like Bing Bong <laughs> and Inside Out, like yeah. <laughs> it's just like only that. Like I was just weeping my eyes out. But but when but when you send Art Block away, that that's a very that's pretty moving. Hearing you talk about that is that a, was that kind of a sad moment or did you feel liberated? I it was a little bit of both. Like it was like sad because I was like, oh, this character that like I really liked and it was like easy to draw. But then at the same time, it was like, I do have to get beyond just like these like things that I've set for myself. So from there, I started doing more jokes that were like based on things that were actually happening in my life. Cause I felt like at first I was like trying to keep it like a little too generic and like to be relatable rather than just like really just like grab stuff from my life to make it like, this is what actually happened. And like, Maybe I'll add a little bit of a flair, but like, it's pretty much what's going on day to day for me. Hearing you talk about the you know, art block there, and and also it kind of gets to the, it gets to a point of, uh, you know, how sometimes we can even be our own worst enemy. Like sometimes I, I know I get in my way all the time, like just with negative self talk and just being like, you know what, you, you, you're not, you, there's always someone way better than you. They're probably the one who can do this story and you can't. So you might as well just surrender and go move on to something else. And uh, I wonder like for you, like when you're, if that, when that voice comes in, the, the negative self talk or your own worst enemy, like how do you metabolize and work, work through that? I think that talk for me is like a little freeing at times. I think that's weird to say. Like, I guess it's because like I'm a younger brother. So like my oldest brother, like always beat me at things. So I'm not like mm -hmm. not used to winning. <laughs> and, like, as I said, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't like the best artist in the school. Like 
uh, for instance, I moved to like Maryland back in my junior year of high school. And so like I was trying to win the superlative of like bet most artistic. So I was like doing comics in the newspaper. I helped design the yearbook and I still didn't get it. <laughs> oh. I was like, oh man, I really tried for that <laughs> and it didn't happen. <laughs> Um, so like, I think when I get like that talk of like, oh, you're like, someone's better than you, I take it as like, yeah, there's someone better than me. So like, there's always going to be someone better than me. So like, don't put that pressure on yourself. Like this isn't, this doesn't have to be a masterpiece. Like you just like have to finish it and make sure that it's better than the day you were or like the day before, like you're better than you were the day before. It's like the ultimate goal. Right. Yeah, I know um, as I've spoken with people over the years, when someone, let's say, writes a really just brilliant story and sometimes the, the initial reaction is like something you're like, damn, how do they how do they do that? How can I do something of that nature? And then you you take a step back and they're like, oh, that's an awesome story that Bronwyn Dickey, a friend of mine, wrote. And I'm like, I know I could never do what she did, but like because she wrote it in such a way it kind of like opens the door for me to pursue the stories that I can do with my own taste and skills and uh and so instead of feeling like you're in direct competition you're just like oh she did that so I bet if I take my skills over here I can do something uh, I don't know something similar to my taste is that something that you feel too when you see other people in your line of work you're like oh that's that's amazing that gives me the juice to do what I can do over here Yes, uh, most definitely. I feel like whenever I see something that's like close to an idea that I had, it's also freeing in the sense of being like, oh, that's why that joke wasn't bought was because like they had bought this one, which was like an idea that was like close to what I had, but done like slightly better. And it, like, I think that helps me like one, get rid of that idea so it doesn't clog up my mind. And I'm like, ah, I got to really try and sell this again. It like, the more ideas I can just like toss, I feel like the more freeing my mind can just like wonder on like different things and different concepts. And like, if someone does something that's like anime influenced um, for like middle grade or something, I won't be like, Oh, I can't believe I wasn't the first person to do that. Instead. I'm like, okay, this allows the floodgates for like more things like that to be allowed. And like, they're not, yeah, like you said, like not my competition, but like, you know, your peer that's like also doing stuff that's close to what you like, but like, it makes you like focus more on like what your voice is, because like, if someone's already doing something close to it, the only thing that's different is like your spin on it. Yeah. Like you really need to find a way. And I mean this in the most flattering way possible, like find out what makes you weird and then like really double down on your weirdness, because that is really the only thing new. Cause there are thousands of people who can draw really not really well and you're not going to separate yourself among other artists because everyone can draw like at a certain level everyone can draw really well Uh, so it really comes down to like your taste your prism and what makes you like weird and whimsical and i think that's where like a lot of creative people just need to kind of don't don't regress to the mean like go to the edges of your weirdness and kind of stay there and hang out you'll find people Yeah, that's why I always, like I said, like put in a joke that's like purely just for me and the batch, even though like I know 
it maybe won't sell, but sometimes it does. And, you know, that's why I like put it in there to be like, ah, that one I really loved (laughs) for just me. And if it doesn't sell, I'll post it on Instagram or something. Right. And, you know, for other artists out there and illustrators who might be struggling to gain traction, you know, how would you... Yeah, if you had the if they were asking you like Akeem, like how do you how do you get noticed? You know, how can I start building a, a career around this art? Like, what what might you say to those people? I would also say like I would say practice makes perfect, of course. So like just keep doing it, and eventually you'll find someone. But I also think it's like the best way to like get found online, or the best way to even like tell a joke to the New Yorker is that you're going for something that feels like an inside joke. Like you're going for a joke that like someone does a little thinking to get it and they feel like they're in there with you. For instance, like when I did, um, I had a daily that came out that was basically like about the Barbie movie. And like there was all, when the trailer dropped, there was like all of these memes on Twitter about like getting tickets for Barbie and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, let me like try and make a joke that like feels like an inside joke. So like, let me make a joke that's with this meme in mind that everyone knows, like everyone's excited to see the Barbie movie. So I was like, what if we could do that further? Where like, what if someone could see it tomorrow? And I was like, all right. So like a scientist with a time machine, like, and then I was like, all right, let's go more into the culture of like America. And like, what do we know? Like, and then I started thinking like eighties and I was like back to the future. And I was like, what if they're trying to see the Barbie movie? And then that's how I had the joke where it's like Doc talking to Marty and being like, if we jump in here right now, we'll make it just in time to see the Barbie movie. And then that joke sold to the New Yorker because it was just like something that felt timeless, but also like an inside joke. Yeah, that's I love hearing how you kind of like work through the levels of it, like because. You know, at first you might come up with a joke or something and it might be like mildly cliche at like the, the early levels. But like if you keep burrowing and burrowing and burrowing, you get to what you just said, like the more inside jokiness of it, where is where the real cleverness and some of the some of the real the real good sort of thinking comes in that inside joke. Like you feel like you're you're in on something, but you kind of have to keep workshopping and keep going a little deeper and a little deeper. There was like a talk that I went to, which was like during the New Yorker festival, like um, uh, Quinta Brunson was talking about social media and she was like saying that like the main things that like pop on social media is basically things that react to TV or like to media, like things on social media usually react to media while media in general reacts to life which I thought was like crazy of a concept, but I was like, that's true. Like social media, the things that really like blow up is about like someone else's reaction to that. While like the more creative stuff like Abbott elementary or like even other sitcoms and stuff like that is about like analyzing society. When you have a drought of some kind, like how do you, how do you work through a drought where you feel like, you know, you're just, you're coming up with things and it's just, it's, it's not selling and, and you have to just keep laboring through those moments. Uh, for those days, I feel like 
I will like read other jokes, other New Yorker jokes to like get inspiration to like get the voice. And then beyond that, I'll also just do like themes. So like some weeks I'll do a theme that's like, all right, you know, nothing's selling. So let me just do something that's like out of my depth that I would normally do. So like this week is nothing but like fairy tales or this week is like nothing but fish. And this week is like nothing but elephants. So it's like, that was like how I got to the one where Emma asked me if I was okay, because I did a bunch of elephants and I like, I did a bunch of elephants like to play with like memory and stuff like that. And I was like doing jokes about trying to remember like how, like trying to remember how I was funny or like forgetting how to be funny was kind of it. And I just like kept using elephants to like fill that mindset. Nothing sold, but <laughs> it was a good release for me. I just feel like <laughs> sometimes I'm just making art for myself and I think that's okay. Another thing that like they didn't like, but I loved was um, there was this whole thing online about like uh, the mammoth meatball, how like some scientists in Australia had just like, made this meatball with mammoth DNA. Hmm. And in my head, I was like, this is, I just like thought of foodies and stuff like that. Like, why would you do that? So then I just like imagined all of these jokes that they did not like or buy. Cause I realized no one else knew about this meatball thing or they like saw it in passing, but I was the only one who like was really like glommed onto it and thought it was really important. <laughs> But the joke was basically just like having a caveman or like the meatball going to the past to a caveman and a caveman being like, it's not quite mammoth flavor. You know, just like being like super snobby about this <laughs> mammoth meatball. And they did not like those jokes, but I love them. <laughs> you, can almost, you can almost picture like uh, the caveman, the cave with the mammoth meatball, like you know, taking a picture of, <laughs> of the meatball yeah. too. You know, the, the plate. <laughs> exactly. Well, now, okay. It's been a while since I've done one of these asides, but speaking of uh, a caveman, uh, Instagramming his food. I mean, you, it was sitting there right in front of me. Like the, the version of a caveman Instagramming his food is like doing a cave drawing of, of his food at a caveman restaurant. Okay, you know what? Maybe it's not funny, but I find it funny, okay? All right, whatever, man, whatever. <laughs> right? You know, just some stupid foodie shit. Um, what a, what's more challenging for you, doing a single panel cartoon or multiple? Uh, I would say a single panel, because I think with multiple, because, like, when you're telling a joke, you kind of, like, want to build the audience expectation and then subvert it in order to like have it be funny to them. And I feel like it's harder to do that in a single panel because like you have to like have an illustration that already builds in an expectation while subverting it. While like with a three panel joke or a four panel joke, you can like have a couple of panels introducing the audience to a concept and then like go along with the ride before you like be like, Oh, let me pull the rug up underneath you. But I feel like one panel is just like, you got one shot to do it and it's tough. <laughs> yeah. Who are some of the cartoonists, be it at the New Yorker or elsewhere where you look at their work and you're like, you're like, 
Damn, that is that is good. They just they inspire you to to make the most out of what you can do with your talents. Um, I would say like Ellis Rosen is really good. I love his humor. Uh, Asher, uh, also <laughs> really really great. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ross Chaz gives that energy that sometimes makes me like be like it's okay to be a little weirder instead of like being as safe. But yeah, just like a bunch of them, like. I'm trying to think so many people like Jeremy is good. Jason, Sophia, just like all of them. Like they like have their own voice. That's like very like they'll go whimsical, but in a way that's not the way that I would do it. And it's like, I love it. Well, that's, that's what makes everybody, you know, they're, they're, that's where you get back to the whole thing about style and voice. And it's like, it's so, they double down or triple down on what makes them weird and they stay, they, they know their lane and are comfortable staying in their HOV lane. Cause this is, this is where I am. This is where everything is humming and all cylinders. And it's like, this is where I am. Like Leanna flick, like she, she's got a very like crude way of drawing, but it's like really funny and dry. And it's, yeah. uh, and I, and I, I love that about them. Asher is hilarious. Like I love his <laughs> stuff it's stuff is so good (laughs) yeah and it's great like some of the ones you post on instagram can be like pretty grim and bleak so i imagine like those are those are ones that you like too when you're when you have a tendency to want to go bleak (laughs) yeah yeah definitely sometimes i like to go like too dark and it's just like not (laughs) what they want (laughs) right and uh and when you if you're writing um uh, a or writing or drawing a cartoon for say like the caption contest like how does th- how does that work where do they does the editor say or do you p- put in a fully fleshed thing and they take the car the caption away and be like yeah we'd like to use this as the contest or how does how does that operate i feel like some people submit stuff that they think would be caption contest stuff and they buy it i have just never been that person for me it's always a joke that like I like submit it to them and then maybe I recaptioned it a couple of times and they're like, all right, kid, not quite it, but we like to draw. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll turn this one over to the masses and see if they can do better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, well, Akeem, I want to be mindful of your time and, you know, it's, uh, you know, something I always like to ask people as we bring these conversations down for a landing is uh, to ask a, ask you, the guest, a, a recommendation for some kind for the listeners. And it can just be anything you're excited about, like a, a cool digital tool or an analog tool or a fanny pack. It, it doesn't matter. So I'd extend that to you, Akeem. What might you uh, recommend to the listeners out there? I would recommend the app Procreate. I feel like all of my New Yorkers are done in that app. And it's all of the professional work that I've done has been done in that app. Surprisingly, I do have Photoshop, nothing against Photoshop, but something about like drawing an iPad on procreate, just like gets that itch for me. And in what way, in what way is it like, uh, it just, it scratches that itch for you. I feel, I feel like when I'm using like a Cintiq, it just feels too much. Like I'm like drawing on glass and like with my iPad, I have like a paper like mat on it, which like allows it to like have more like grit. And I feel like that Ooh, makes it yeah. feel it just like scratches my brain in a good way. Like like I'm writing on paper. It's like not quite paper, but it's like close enough that like it, it scratches it. 
Yeah, like there is some friction there that feels like, you know, maybe pencil on paper. Like, yeah, that's satisfying, I guess. Very nice. Well, Akeem, uh, this was so great to get to talk to you about this. And, you know, we, we are cosmically intertwined since my caption one year, you're a really brilliant cartoon. And uh, so I'm so happy we're able yeah, yeah, to yeah. Uh, to do this. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's really cool it's that we're sad. able to do this and get to talk about how you uh, approach creativity and, and your craft, which I so deeply admire and really, really, really love. So, you know, thanks for uh, taking the time here to talk shop and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Uh, I will say I do have one question. What is your, uh, what's your caption process? Oh, let's see. I, you know, I, I like to do it every, every week. And I imagine since I was so lucky to, to win one here that uh, even if I submit, I'll probably, I probably, probably wouldn't be able to be selected again, but I, um, I try to go for something really short and punchy. Uh, I feel like reading so many, captions uh, uh, and i love the cartoons i read all the cartoons first and and uh those like short punchy ones uh tend to be uh the word economy has to be really good um so that's how uh, that's what i try to go for and then i also think of what you know what is the cliche thing you know if there's a you know a duck as the as the pilot you know it, it probably probably a lot of people are going to go into actually flying or something. So it's like, I, I tried to think like, well, ducks like water landings. And so the, when you're on a plane, they always say in the un- unlikely event of a water landing. So I was like, that one might be really yeah. good because they, they know how to skim into the water. I'm like, oh, that one, that one has some, that one has a pop to it. And uh, I submitted that on Instagram and it, and it, they actually noticed it, which, you know, it only got like eight likes or something from the community and some others are getting hundreds. So I'm like, there's no way no, they're going to pick this. But I was really encouraged oh, wow. that they that they like comb through and actually look for what they deem to be the best ones, not the ones that were just sort of algorithmically upvoted by uh, by Instagram. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. like that that is kind of what they want is a. Uh a short punchy uh caption that i am trying to see if i can get a very long caption in and that's my goal (laughs) yeah well that's the other thing too about like you know a long caption can be can be really really funny too because you're like oh my god this thing just keeps going 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 and that's part of the joke that it's so long yeah and that and i i really like that too but it's uh yeah but it's always about you know that word economy can you just like look at it and just like read it in a second and you just kind of get a little chuckle. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a, that's kind of how I always approach it. And it's a fun game for me. Cause I, I, I like, I just like, it scratches a comedic itch for me and um, yeah, who knows? And I, I got lucky. I, I got lucky. Not only was it made a finalist, but it got voted the winner. So I was really, yeah. I was tickled and yeah. So I'm super stoked. So I'm glad, I'm glad we got, we got the, whether you knew it or not, we got the partner on something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a good caption. I'm glad it's there. (laughs) Hey, CNFers, as always, thanks for listening. And thanks to Akeem for coming to play ball and to talk about how he draws his cartoons and writes his cartoons. Great stuff. He's at Akeem Team on Instagram, and you can learn more about him and his work at AkeemTeam.com. That's A-K-E-E-M-T-E-A-M. Yo, BrendanOmero.com is where you find the show notes and where you can also sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's still book recommendations, a short essay, 
writing inspirations, and a series of links that literally go up to 11. First of the month, no spam, so far as I can tell. You can't beat it. Oh boy, now I, I, de- I really, I really debated whether or not to talk about this because there's still quite a bit of uncertainty. This is not writing related. Uh, but if you remember uh, a couple weeks back, I talked about Lachlan, this troubled dog that we adopted. And we seem to always find these really troubled dogs. Um, uh, but we ultimately decided to surrender him back to the shelter because there was an incompatibility. Uh, he went back to a foster home because he was a bit disruptive in the shelter because he barks, 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 barks. Oh, my goodness. So he's kind of a stress ball and stressing everyone else out. So, oh, my God, I got a call this morning. This being Thursday, it was the shelter, and I was like, "Oh fuck!" Uh, they were gonna, they were they only said they were going to be calling me back to tell me about Lachlan. So, and they were going to say we're only going to call you talk about Lachlan if they deemed him unfit for adoption, and would soon be euthanized. So my stomach just drops into my shoes because I I knew that my wife and I, and by extension our other two dogs. We're gonna have to welcome back, welcome him back, and figure it out. You know, this dog had like no chance at a good life. I had better faith in the foster care that that the shelter had access to um, that fell out from under him yet again. Uh, they uh, he was improving under our care, but the aggression was something that came out. And it was something we figured we couldn't tackle and that maybe it would be best to he'd be a single dog home. And I figured he could survive in foster for as long as he as long as it took to find that single dog home. But I guess the foster couldn't couldn't handle him anymore. And I guess this is one of their better foster people, an all star foster. Oh, like I said, he he, uh, it's, it's kind of it's very it's very hard for me to even talk about it. He he doesn't deserve to die, just because he's scared and stressed out and something of a nuisance right now. So even now, my eyes are starting to burn up. With the proper training and above all, like structure and patience, he's got potential. And we thought we were on that road, and it just it seemed untenable at the time. I think we can defray the aggression and with training, uh, some medication as well um, to get him through his training and a fucking shit ton of exercise. And did I say patience? He'll come around. He's very bright. He's very sweet. He's a real tender soul, but he needs better circumstances for him to shine. It'll take months to remove the fear and the stress, but we've got to do it. And I think once we he gets that stability and remove some of that stress and defray some of that fear, then it'll open the door for other aspects of his personality to come through, and he might even get along with the other two, um, the other two dogs. So you might be asking, like, why didn't you just do it before, Bo? Why do you surrender him back in the first place? And it's a fair question. And did we give up too soon? And three weeks is nothing. After three weeks, though, it, things seem to be in terms of aggression escalating. And like I said, I had more faith in the shelter to rehome him with the right family. Their all-star foster couldn't handle him after a few days. Even I gave him, gave the foster just a ton of 
info on him. I, I wrote the book on him. I wrote like this thousand word email about, you know, things to do to help him out. But it, I guess it was just too much. And he was stressed out there. Apparently, I don't know, just disruptive and uh, maybe even a danger to himself. I don't know. We did see some improvement in him in the three weeks we had. It's there. The guy from the shelter was trying to tell me why it might be a good idea to euthanize him. And uh, and this is, you know, and it's no-kill shelter. So I guess this is more for a no-kill shelter. I guess this is some sometimes common, which kind of caught me off guard. You know, when I had to re- surrender him, they first said, like, oh, do you want to know if, like, we deem it unfit, like, if he's unadoptable, that we put him down? I was like, that's a thing? And anyway... What I say the guy he's you know you know that he could be too disruptive to us because we need to have our lives and our other dogs they deserve to have good lives too. I, this isn't a reason, in my opinion, put a dog to sleep. If we were his last line of defense between the right home and euthanasia, we would find a way. That's what I told the shelter. We didn't think that just two weeks to the day of surrendering him, we'd be called back saying we were in fact that last line of defense so here we go again by this time next week little Lachlan little prince as I was calling him uh, will likely be back in the house barking and raising hell I we're gonna have to figure things out Uh, but I think we're better equipped in a sense because we have the book on him we we know what we're getting into you know, we're meeting with uh, the trainer who helped us with Kevin last year you know Kevin was a basket case a year ago granted she didn't she's very demure and submissive and doesn't have the aggression that Lachlan was developing and territoriality I think it was mainly triggered by Hank um so you know Hank's gonna have to get in line you know he's his rule is coming to an end (laughs) um but like I said with time stability in training you know Kevin she's thriving and I think Lachlan deserves that chance I think I said, I think I said, I think I said it was a square peg, round hole situation a couple weeks ago. Well, we need to get out of saw and make that round hole square. And it's going to be tough, expensive, and disruptive. But is that, is disruptive a reason to put a dog to sleep? Because he's difficult? Because he's inconvenient? Because he's not this, this perfect little four-legged humanoid? Dog was dealt one of the shittiest hands in his short life, and my wife, and by extension, Kevin and Hank, are going to have to make some sacrifices because we don't we don't give up on each other. Lachlan needs our help, and fuck, he's going to get it. So stay wild, CNFers. If you can't do, interview. See you.